Book Two, Chapter Eleven of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence. Book Two, Chapter Eleven: Spiritualism, Love, and Politics. Great was the grief of Emily when she heard that Mr. Brandon was going away in a week or two, and that he might never come back to England for a dozen of years. And now, instead of spending the rest of his time in London with them, he had to go to Ashfield to spend his last days in England with his mother and sisters and nephews and nieces. She felt quite wronged by this conduct and bade him good-bye when he came to take his temporary leave of them, with an amount of sulkiness rather foreign to her character. Lessons were a far greater bore than usual on that day, and both Emily and Harriet tried Jane's patience sorely. After they were set free for two hours in the middle of the day, Jane found her cousin was waiting for her to go out with him, and she wished very particularly to see him on account of some news she had got from Scotland. He had not been satisfied to have none of her society on the preceding day, and had appointed with Mrs. Phillips to come when she would be at leisure, which that lady had forgotten or neglected to tell Jane or Elsie. It was Jane alone whom he wished to see, it was to her alone that he could speak about the communication with reference to his letter. Jane was sorry that Elsie was not asked to accompany their walk, but when Francis said he had something on his mind, and proceeded to tell all the singular circumstances of the previous evening, she listened with the greatest attention and with a suspended judgment. When he came to the mental question which related to herself, he simply called it something on which his heart was greatly set. It might have been his allotments or his cottages, but Jane asked no questions, and took no notice of his want of completeness in his narrative. Then he told of the inquiry as to Mrs. Peck's connection with Mr. Phillips, which he ought not to have asked, and which had received no answer. He paused for Jane's opinion before he came to narrate Mr. Dempster's message from his friend lost in the bush. "'Now, what do you think of all this, Jane?' "'I am a little staggered, as you were,' she said. "'I wish you had heard more or less. It bewilders me. Should I then follow this advice so strangely given?' "'I think the advice exactly corresponds with what you had resolved to do at any rate. It need not influence you either one way or the other. You asked my advice the other day, but neither from me nor from a departed spirit should you accept of or follow any advice which appears to your own soul not to be good. You cannot shift off your personal responsibility. As I said, it is your affair, not mine, and I feel sorry that consideration for me, and for my generous employer, has weighed so much with you that you scarcely give the claims of your mother their just due. And the spirit said she was my mother, but at the same time advised, or rather commanded me, to have nothing to do with her. I do not wish to have anything to do with her. What is it to be grateful for? Such a loveless, joyless life as mine has been, thwarted even now in my dearest hopes and wishes. Francis, said Jane, you have a great deal to be thankful for, and so have I. With all the sufferings of the past year, I would not have been without it for the world. We have both learned much, both from circumstances and from each other. Jane, I am weary of all this talk about progress and perfection. I am hungering for happiness, as I told this strange interlocutor last night, said Francis, earnestly. And you will attain to it, Francis, but do not set your heart on what it is not right or wise or expedient for you to obtain. And you cannot look me in the face and say that, if one thing is denied, you have not many sources of happiness. Jane looked at him with her sisterly eyes, feeling the pain she was giving, but determined not to show that she had any personal regrets. 
It was very kind, but it was very discouraging. She felt for him like a sister and nothing more. "'If I have any eyes,' said Francis, trying violently to change the subject, "'Brandon is still an admirer of your sister's. What in the world keeps him from declaring himself? Why does he not offer her all he has, and all he may hope to gain? He cares no more for Miss Phillips than I do, and she would never consent to accompany him to Australia. And Elsie looks so pretty and so sad. She needs a protector. She would be grateful to him. She cannot stand alone as you do, and she knows she makes your position here much more difficult. The truth is, Elsie refused him, and it is difficult for a man to make a second offer when he has such slight opportunities of seeing her, even if he has not made a transfer of his affections. I would make an opportunity. I would write. I would ask point-blank to see her. I would speak to you about it, if I were in his place. It is cowardly in Brandon. Why, Francis, you are very unreasonable. Elsie refused him as positively and uncompromisingly as possible on her way down to Derbyshire. I do not think she would do so now, but how is he to know that? I would hint as much to him if I were you. Why, Jane, a word for you might secure your sister's happiness for life, and you shrink from saying it. Indeed I do, said Jane. I think no good can come from interfering in such matters, and I am particularly ill-adapted for such a delicate communication. Besides, if one may judge by the last few weeks, it is Miss Phillips who ought to receive the offer of marriage, and not Elsie. If her brother were to ask what Mr. Brandon's intentions are, as he might very well do, the result would be a marriage of two very ill-assorted people. She cannot comprehend the real goodness and simplicity of his character, and despises the man whom she is scarcely worthy to wait on. She even looks down on her generous brother. She has no love for her brother's children, and no sympathy with any one. I am really very glad to observe with you that her influence with Mr. Brandon has decreased of late but he certainly has paid her a great deal of attention, and she expects a proposal. "'Her face has no charm to me,' said Francis. "'Taken feature by feature it is handsome enough, but it wants play and variety, and it has not the perfect harmony of Mrs. Phillips's. That is a singularly beautiful index to a soul that appears to be nothing particular. I have heard it said that we all have our ugly moments. Have you ever seen such a time with Mrs. Phillips?' There are times when she certainly does not look beautiful to me, nor to Elsie either. But I wanted to speak to you of your own affairs. I had a letter from Tom Lowry this morning, in which he says that he hears from one of his old schoolfellows that you have been asked to stand for the Swinton group of boroughs, and that every one says you will easily be able to carry them over the Duke's man. Ah! Has he heard about it? I should have told you of it, but the more pressing personal interest of the letter from Melbourne, Mr. Phillips's strange agitation, and this mysterious spiritual communication, put it out of my head for the time, and a word from you would put it aside for ever," said Francis, with the old wistful look. Jane, like all women who are interested in public matters at all, and they form a very small minority of her sex, rather overestimated the importance of a parliamentary career. She knew the turn of her cousin's mind, his education as a man of the people, his position as a man of property, his earnest desire to do right, his patient habits of business, and his thorough method of researching and inquiry, were all certain guarantees that he could not fail, and she had the belief that his abilities and readiness, and confidence, would make him an eloquent and skilful debater. It appeared to her to be an object of great importance that a perfectly honest and independent member should replace for the boroughs in her native country, the nominee of a great family, who only voted with his party, and had never done any credit to either to the electors or to the nation. 
She said truly when she spoke of her ambition, finding its vent in dreams about him and her pupil, Tom Lowry. She certainly had influenced Francis Hogarth's character greatly during the turning point of his life. The ideas she had nursed in her trials had been on his mind with force and earnestness, and through him she could hope to give voice to a number of her crotchets and theories. Where a woman writes as well as thinks, she does not feel this dependence on the other sex so strongly, for though at a disadvantage, she can for herself utter her thoughts. But Jane, as my readers will have observed, was not literary. She was an intelligent, well-informed, observing woman, but her field was action, and not books. In her present situation she had very little time for reading, but from all that she saw, and from all the conversation she could hear, she found hints for action and subjects for thought. To see Francis in the British Parliament was a worthy ambition, and to give up such a probable career for an inglorious and obscure life with herself was not to be thought of. His wistful looks and earnest tones were to be treasured up in her heart for ever, but her own love for him was not of that imperious and unreasonable nature that she could not live without him. End of Book 2, Chapter 11